on Christ's place in history, and and our, uh, I think he does a a good job here dealing with the divine name, and uh, and I I know I've told you this before, but when you're uh, when you're reading in the Old Testament, when you see and it, it more than they actually show in English, but when you see kind of capital T, capital L, the Lord, you should translate that in your mind, Yahweh or I am. It's the divine name that God gave to Moses on Mount Sinai when he said, you know, they're not going to listen to me. Who should I say sent me? And God said, tell Pharaoh, I am sent you, Yahweh. And so, you know, so when you see things like at the, in the 23rd Psalm, the Lord is my shepherd, it doesn't really say that. It really says Yahweh is my shepherd. And all of the I am passages in our stained glass windows are Jesus using I am in reference to himself. They are claims to be the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God who was the God of the Exodus, the God of the Old Testament. Jesus applied that name to himself, which no Jew would do. So that's where we're starting here and where Peterson is going to take us. So he's talking about the presence of God in history. I am that I am is the clearest and most convincing revelation of the presence of God that we have. Parenthetically, always, of course, accepting Jesus, the word made flesh. The sentence is seismic. God became present to Moses as he was tending a flock in the Midian wilderness. A burning bush that didn't burn up caught Moses' attention. He approached it to see what was going on. God spoke to Moses' name. God spoke Moses' name from the flames of the bush, and Moses answered. Conversation between God and Moses developed. God announced his intention to deliver his people from Egyptian slavery and told Moses that he wanted him to lead them out to a, quote, good and broad land, unquote. Moses was reluctant, but after a lengthy back-and-forth exchange, agreed, received his instructions, and the action was launched, Exodus 3 and 4. I am that I am is God's answer to Moses' request for an identifying name. I am that I am, God's name for himself, tells Moses that God is alive, present to him, and ready to enact salvation or rescue. This God-revealing name and the understandings that developed as it was used in prayer and obedience by the Hebrew people marks the deconstruction of every kind and sort of impersonal, magical, manipulative, abstract, coercive way of understanding God. Well, I think that's, that is so huge that, you know, again, God is not the force. You know, God is a person, and, and God is personally involved. And this is, this is not uh, us getting in tune with an impersonal force but us entering relationship with a very personal God who not only is personal himself, but knows us personally and desires us to know him personally. So listening to and answering, I am that I am, place the Hebrew people as participating witnesses in the grand historical drama of salvation that challenges and brings about the eventual dissolution of every counter way of life, the world principalities and powers, against which Paul would later issue a call to arms, Ephesians 6, 10 to 20. Quote, all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor, 
unquote, that Jesus refused to bargain for with the devil in the temptation scene in Matthew 4, 8 to 10. Worshiping I am that I am developed into a way of life in Israel in which love defined relationships, all of them, no exceptions. We love God. We love neighbor. We love stranger. We love enemy. We love family. Serving and obeying I am that I am became an exploration in all the dimensions of freedom. Freedom from sin, freedom from oppression, freedom from damnation. I am that I am, this verb-dominated, life-emphatic sentence by which God willed to be understood was shortened to a verbal noun of four letters, Y-H-W-H, probably pronounced Yahweh, and usually translated as Lord in English. It became the primary term among the Hebrews for address in reference to the self-revealing God of Israel. It is used 6,700 times in the Old Testament as compared to the 2,500 occurrences of the generic Semitic term for divinity, Elohim, translated into English simply as God. So again, you know, as you look at your English Bibles and read the Old Testament, most of the time when you see Lord, it is going to be Yahweh, particularly if it's capitalized. And when you see God, you're reading that Hebrew term Elohim. And then in one of the things that you see in the creation story is in the beginning, God, Elohim, created the heavens and the earth. But then eventually you get in chapter 2 to the Lord God, which is Yahweh Elohim in Hebrew. So the name of God that Moses learns on Mount Sinai, he then reads into the story of the creation of human beings. And and that Lord God, again, specifies, this is not just God generically, but God specifically, that there is no other God but God. And so, which is sort of a, I don't know, you know, it's, it's interesting in this political season is that the parties try to define themselves as not those guys. So, you know, you know, this is those guys and we are not those guys. And that's how Moses writes the story of Genesis is that the God of Israel are not, is not those guys, not the gods of the Egyptians. And, and he not only writes that he is not the gods of the Egyptians, but that the gods of the Egyptians are inferior to a massive degree to our God, which when you're on the bottom of the pile and you claim that your God is superior to the gods of the people who are on top of the pile, that sounds unconvincing. And yet that's why he writes the story of Genesis the way he writes it, is to say that the supreme God of Egypt is the sun, the sun God Ra. But where does the sun appear in the story of creation? He doesn't even appear till day four. And how does he appear? Our God makes him. Is that he's a thing. He's not a God. You know, he, he serves the God who made him. And so this is, this is propaganda in the best sense. It is, it is written to persuade. It is written to convert you to a point of view and a way of seeing that says that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God who rescued Israel in the Exodus, is the supreme God and the maker of everything and the ruler of everything. So, so Moses is intending to build confidence, which then calls forth as a response, faith. 
You've got to believe that this God is, and what Hebrews says, a rewarder of those who seek him. So, you know, again, Moses tells you what he tells you because he wants you to believe what he wants you to believe. So, you know, it's not objective history. It is subjective history with an agenda. He's writing... He's writing because he wants you to know and to believe what he believes. So when he, when God calls himself, when he says, I am that I am, is he saying, I am, I exist? Am? Well, I mean, yeah, he is definitely saying, saying that. And, uh, and he's, he's basically saying, I, I am. I am independent of the things I have made is that I exist apart from what I have made, what I have, what I have created or made is dependent on me. I'm not dependent on it. And so, you know, so again, that's one of the distinctions I think that Moses wants to make is that God doesn't need Israel. God condescends and rescues Israel because he loves them, but God will be whether Israel is or not. And so, and similarly for, for us, God is, uh, God is able to help us because he is not dependent on us. Sometimes we, you hear preachers talk about something that God needs. Well, that's really terrible theology. You know, God doesn't need anything, but, you know, I, I think about Sarah growing up on the farm and, and at some point as a little girl, she was invited to do farm stuff, to grow up and, and learn about, you know, this is what turkeys do. This is what chickens do. This is what the crops do. This is when we sow. This is how we fertilize. This is how we water. You know, you can do this too much. You can do it too little. But she learned all the farm stuff by doing it with her parents and, and, and has memories of those things now that she's got nieces and nephews and grandnieces and grandnephews that as she walks around the garden, she's teaching them things that have been taught to her. She got in on what the big people were doing at some point and learned what the big people, well, the same thing God does with us is that the big people didn't need Sarah's help particularly, but they shared the things that they knew with her because it blessed them to do it and it blessed her to learn it. And now she's doing the same thing with those who are younger than she is. Uh, and, and they're amazed that Aunt Sarah knows what she knows. You know, it's like, wow, who knew? And so, you know, I think the same thing with God. God. God doesn't need our help to do anything. If he made the universe without us, you remember that great Eliza Doolittle rant in My Fair Lady, you know, against Henry Higgins, you know, the sun will still come up without you, you know, and she stomps around singing without you, uh, is that all of these things will happen without us, you know, whether we're here or not, God's work continues, but God lets us in on it and invites us in on it. And, and again, seems to delight to share the wonders of his creation and his powers with his children. That that's his pleasure to do that. And that he delights in doing that just as we do with our children. And so, uh, you know, I think, I think that that independence of God, that lack of, of need is, is behind. I am, uh, Okay, I just thought it was interesting that he didn't give himself a name. Yes, yes. It, it's a pronoun and a verb. 
That's right, exactly. And that's it. And I find that fascinating that he didn't yeah. call himself something. That's right. That's right. Yeah, and and yet and yet he did. So you know, we do have a name. And then we see Jesus appropriating that name to himself, which is stunning. So, and again, when he said about Abraham, before Abraham was, I am, the people understood exactly what he said, and they took up stones to stone him. You know, they they thought that was blasphemy, that a man would claim to be the maker of heaven and earth. And there's astounding nature was, how can you be before Abraham? You're not 30 years old, are you? So... That's that's the point. <laughs> yeah. So the name the name spoken from the burning bush marked the definitive revelation of God as present to us and personal with us. God here among us, a living God in relation with us. No more gods of sticks and stones. No more gods to be appeased or bribed or courted. No more gods decked out in abstractions for philosophical speculation. No more gods cast as major players in cosmic war and sex myth dramas. On the day that Moses stood before the bush. I may disagree actually with him in terms of his last statement there. No more gods cast as major players in cosmic war. I mm. I think I think maybe that the cosmic war theme from the pagans is derived because Yahweh is at cosmic war. That you know that light is opposed to darkness, that God is opposed to a devil, that these are not equal, a battle between equals, but there is a battle and there is a mutiny and there is, God is, is fighting as a warrior against things that would destroy and ruin his creation and his people. And so, so I may disagree with him a little in that one sentence, uh, but we'll see where we go here. Um, on the day that Moses stood before the bush in Midian, three or four, three or so hundred miles to the west of the Egyptian civilization, already well over a thousand years old, flourished. I think that's an important an important thing, one of the stunning things, when we went to Egypt the first time, Sarah, do you remember what Jim told us about the Great Pyramids? I mean, they were there when Abraham was walking by. That's right. right. That Abraham, two, yeah. And they were antiques then. Right. You know, they, they had been built a long time and were out of use a long time before Abraham walked past them. Mm-hmm. Uh, so... I think that that was impressive to me. Mm-hmm. So it was it was a civilization impressive in its engineering and architecture, those incredible pyramids and temples, its elaborate religion and accompanying priesthood that sought to control every every detail of daily life, its aggressive armies intent on subduing everyone within reach to subservience, Egypt dominated the Middle Eastern world. But it was a dominion of death. The pyramids, the most conspicuous monuments on their landscape were tombs. They were very elaborate tombs, tombs that by their incredibly intricate art and design and the engineering ingenuity required for their construction evoked wonder. By their sheer size, they would seem, under the guise of immortality, to defy anything, even death, especially death, and get the last word. All the same, they were tombs, hosts to a mummy, houses for the dead. As we ponder those pyramids, symbolic of so much that went on in Egyptian civilization, 
Emotions of awe and derision compete in us, but not for long. Awe can't compete with derision here. The awe that springs spontaneous in us as we stand before such engineering and art is soon overcome by derision at the absurdity of supposing that inanimate stone could provide a passage to immortal life. Egyptian civilization was obsessed with immortality, achieved by the stonemason's mallet and chisel and the embalmer's art. In the biblical story, Egypt is synonymous with death. All Egyptian magnificence and arrogance was reduced at that burning bush to its essence, a small heap of ash. The antonym of death-dealing Egypt is life-giving Yahweh, God here and present, alive and saving. So again, I think that's how Moses writes the story of both Genesis and Exodus, is that Egypt is death, Yahweh is life. That the gods of Egypt are about trying to get out of death. The God of Israel is the God who brings life, who is the author of life, and who is able to overcome death. So the name from the bush is not evoked or conjured. Moses is minding his own business, remote from the so-called action, miles and years away from Egyptian wealth and power in religion. The name, the verb, in the first person, I am, takes the initiative. That marked the historical turning point in what has become the long continuing collapse of using death and the fear of death in the lucrative and complex business of selling religious insurance, playing on people's fear and superstitions. A millennium plus, a couple of centuries later, Jesus will continue and then complete the event at the bush. He will take these very words, these I am words on his lips and flesh them out in salvation meetings and salvation conversations with lost and dying, confused and bedeviled, sick and guilty slaves of sin and lead them into a new life. St. John's Gospel will provide Jesus a provide a Jesus conclusion to the revelation at the bush. <clears throat> so that that's, I hope, a lens for you to look at the stained glass windows at First Pres. Uh, the, the one in the chapel as well as the ones in the fellowship hall, or the sanctuary. And, and also to see the the hidden ones that are there. I think when I look at the center aisle, I think of another one where Jesus says, I am the way. Okay. And, and when I look at the doors, Jesus says, the same time he says, I'm the good shepherd, he also says, I am the door. So he's, he's the way we get in on what God is doing. Uh, so, also when you see the candles, you get, I am the light of the world. And when you get communion, you get, I am the bread of life. So, I think you can find most, if not all of them, in our sanctuary if you have eyes to see. So, that's what I'm trying to give you. And then, when you walk people around, you can... Help them see what you now see. So just like walking them around your garden, Sarah. Right. You can you can help them know stuff. <laughs> and I think, you know, when you know stuff, everything's different. So it's like, ah. So the name, I am that I am, 
has been studied, examined, probed, and meditated by, by an endless succession of scholars and saints in many languages in attempts to pin it down, define it, say what it means. The most conspicuous result of this mountainous effort stretching now for well over 2,000 years is how inconclusive it is. There is no, quote, result. God cannot be defined. Yahweh, quote, unquote, is not a definition. God cannot be reduced to an object. So, Victoria, this is where you were going. So, he is not an object of our inquiry or search. The earlier God names among the people of God are all nouns. The generic God, Elohim, God of the Fathers, Elohe Abot, God Almighty, El Shaddai, God the Most High, El Elyon, God of Hosts, Elohe, yeah, Savot. So again, that's Lord Sabaoth. If you hear in uh, a mighty fortress, yeah. so continue to be useful, but they all now must be understood under the primacy of the verb that cannot be pinned down, cannot be put under the scrutiny of an examination, but can only be received or responded to. God is actively present to us, and our only option is to be actively present in our turn or not. In this regard, C.H. Steve Reason emphasizes the actuality of God. Quote, I am who I am, quote, means I am there, wherever it may be. I am really there. The parallel, Exodus 33, 19, confirms this. Is the name purposely enigmatic? Revelational, but not telling everything. Disclosing intimacy, personal presence, but preserving mystery. Forbidding possession and control. A verbal icon for all God-initiated relationships in faith and friendship and marriage. I think so. He's the bush. Yep, yep, I'm back. Uh, the bush and the name are in contrast to everything that was going on in Egypt at the time. Egypt represented the ultimate <clears throat> in control controlling a large slave population, controlling the afterlife, controlling a world empire, controlling a huge stable of gods and goddesses, as if by reducing them to stone, gigantic and magnificent as the stones were, they could not, through their elaborate priestly machinations, control history. But that is anti-history. History is a field for salvation. Dealing with people as objects is a violation of the primary work of history, which is salvation. Now, that, I think, is absolutely where I'm trying to go in those ponderings on creation is that everything we see God doing is about rescuing his lost creation, not just humans, but everything that has been distorted and perverted by darkness and evil, by the mutiny. And so I think the whole story of the Bible from Genesis 1-1 on is all about this God who is irrevocably committed to rescuing his people and rescuing the world he made. So dealing with people as objects is a violation of the primary work of history, which is salvation. And reducing God to an object or an idea or a definition so that we can control God is an outrageous absurdity 
no matter how solemnly carried out, and the Egyptians were nothing if not solemn. In the revelation of the name at the bush, God, by withholding a definition, preserves his freedom so that we can have our freedom. Gerhard von Rod put it this, puts it this way, quote, what is of greatest importance is that this name could not properly be objectified and disposed of. Its secret could not in any way be reduced to a theological interpretation of its meaning, not even the one in Exodus 3.14. Yahweh had bound it up with the free manifestation in history of his self-revelation in history. Yes. I think that, I think that's reminds me of Haifman's line about God showing up and showing off. Is that God does stuff in history that tells us what he is like, but doesn't define him. It tells us things that he has done, which I think then give us impressions of things that God can do. And then he makes promises about things that he will do. So that is, I think, I think that's something that, have you all read the Chronicles of Narnia? Oh, Victoria, you, you have to do it. You owe it to, to do it. They're children's books written by C.S. Lewis for his nieces and nephews, but they tell the story of the rescue uh, in these charming fairy tale kinds of ways. The Christ figure is a lion that speaks named Aslan. <laughs> and, uh, and so one of the things that they say about Aslan is that he is good, but he is not safe. And, he is and not safe. He is not safe. And uh, so it is, to hang around with Aslan is scary, but you can rely on his goodness. And so, you know, but it doesn't mean, it doesn't mean that you will feel like you're out of danger but, but he will, he will not abandon you to the danger. He will be with you in the danger, and uh, and sometimes he will put you in danger, but for a good purpose. And and then we'll not leave you there, but we'll be with you there. Uh, but yeah, you owe it to yourself. To read the Chronicles of Narnia, or you can borrow the oh, movie, well. or you can borrow the movies from me. I, I have all the movies. I love the story. I love it. Cliff notes. <laughs> yeah. No, I read this for tape letters. That was the last thing by C.S. Lewis I read, which I love. And um, I've, I've not read the Chronicles of Narnia. I've heard about them over and over, and lucky I heard you mention them before. Yes. So I'm going to have to do this. Well, this was. We, we read them aloud to our children several times, but it was, I think, the primary tool that we used to actually evangelize our children because they, could, they would interact with the stories and ask us questions, which then let us have child-directed theological discussions. And so we could talk about biblical truth without, you know, now dad, the pastor, is going to lay one on us, you know. So we were having this experience together. Um, but yeah, we just read them out loud as a family. And so it was, it was fun to do. Great. And then the questions that they asked were profound, actually. I was like, I'm sure it was fun to see their reactions to it. Oh, totally. Yeah. yeah. Yes, we <laughs> yeah. <laughs> We read it for us. <laughs> yeah. I, I didn't know about them growing up but I found them in uh, in May of my first year of seminary I think and and so I would 
I was taking apologetics with R.C. Sproul at May term, and I would I would stop studying at 10 o'clock so I could start reading the Chronicles of Narnia at night. And uh, but I had to make myself go to go to bed at midnight. But I sometimes cheated because I couldn't put it down. Yeah. <laughs> Good recommendation. Yeah. So, okay. So exorcism. Exorcism. A major difficulty in embracing history as the field for salvation, some find it insurmountable, is the sheer mass of relentless and assertive counter evidence. The loudest and most conspicuous players on the field of history are playing quite a different game than Christ is. Most people, and certainly those who get the most attention and their names in the history books, are playing other games by different rules. War games, self games, money games, board games, baseball games, hunting and fishing games, card and roulette games, church games, sex games, games ranging from lethal to trivial, sin and death games. Many, if not all of these games are associated with outright claims or implicit assumptions that the games will lift the lives of those who play them out of the ordinary to something more interesting, more exciting, more meaningful. Banish boredom, invite excellence, offer company with the elite, establish power. It is not difficult to detect at least a hint of transcendence in all this, to pick up muted God voices and God claims, small g, advertising their wares, pretending to help save, entertain, improve, empower. Even if the word is not used, and it seldom is, some variation or other on salvation is suggested. We will be rescued from a condition in which we feel stuck, anything ranging from boredom to misery, and have a better life. But in the long run, the offers don't amount to much, and certainly not to anything that would qualify as salvation. Christian spirituality makes bold to claim that there is only one game on the field of history, and that is salvation. Everything that happens, everything that men and women do, happens on this playing field, on and over which God is sovereign. The field in which Christ plays in 10,000 places. But it takes some doing for us to see that. It took some doing for Israel to see that. But see if they did, and here is how it came about. In approximately 1250 BC, I think it was earlier, but he likes the later date for the Exodus here. Mm -hmm. So, um, the people of Israel were living in Egypt as slaves and had been for over 400, for four centuries. Egypt at this time was a world power and had been for a long time. Egypt had developed and perfected one of the most impressive God games of all, dominating the landscape, dominating the imaginations of people far and near. A totalitarian society ruled by a dictator whom everyone believed was also a god. The splendor surrounding the dictator god made it believable. Breathtaking architecture, dazzling art, everything magnificent in gold. But the splendor was all external. Inside the place, inside the place was crawling with maggots, abuse, cruelty, superstition, degradation. The Hebrews were right there in the middle of it. But obviously and hopelessly on the losing side. Were there pockets of people who kept the old stories of the fathers in clandestine circulation? Probably. 
But for most of it, but for most it would seem that Egypt was the only game in town. After 430 years in Egypt, the memory of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Joseph would have been well nigh obliterated. Under these conditions, it is difficult to apprehend what God is doing in history, or even if he is doing anything at all. In order for the people of God to be able to recognize and respond to God's revelation and work as I am that I am, they're going to have to see this pharaonic morass of lies and oppression, this pervasive and outrageous violation of human life for what it is, evil. But an evil which is not ultimate, not the last word. They require a massive renovation in their understanding of Egyptian reality. Typically, people who suffer long and much come to see their oppressors as powerful, world powerful, and therefore at the top of the hierarchy of human achievement. The Hebrews had suffered long and much an oppression underwritten by a most impressive religion. All those temples and statues and priests, everywhere they looked, they could see that not only were the Egyptians against them, the gods were against them. However much they protested their place as oppressed slaves in the system, the system was the only reality they knew. It was impossible to imagine anything else. If by some miracle they became free of their slave condition, they would almost certainly take their place higher up in the chain of oppression and function as oppressors themselves. This kind of thing happens all the time in families, businesses, revolutionary governments, bureaucracies, and churches. So how was Moses to rip off the veneer of all this power and majesty and beauty and success and expose it as evil so that when he led his people out of Egypt, they would not carry their Egyptian experience with them for the rest of their lives as the approved reality, the only reality, and then simply reproduce it when they arrived in the country of their salvation. Now, I want to pause there just for a second. Um, we had a, an extraordinary experience on our trip to Egypt and Jordan, is that we were in the town of Sukkot, the ruins of Sukkot, actually on Passover. We were the only people there. So we were leaving on Passover the day that Israel left from the same place on Passover. Wow. And, and we had this Egyptian guy, and he was, he said two things that have stayed with me ever since. But he said, you know, God got, first thing I asked him, I said, you know how, when you guys made the Sinai deal with Israel, how is it that you didn't take back Gaza? And, and he smiled, and his eyes sparkled, and he says, you know, sometimes, Reverend, you win by losing. Oh. <laughs> oh. That's astounding. <laughs> oh, I mean, it was like seared in my brain. Ooh. And so, because it's been nothing but trouble for Israel ever since they got it, you know? So, but the second thing is that God, and I forget, maybe he said it, maybe Jim said it, but God got Israel out of Egypt in one night. But God took 40 years to get Egypt out of Israel. Mm -hmm. And the same thing with us. I mean, our experience is so much the same that we're saved in a moment. But it takes the rest of our lives to get the world out of us and to have us live wholly and completely by faith and not by sight. I mean, we, we are so imbued with this world that... God has to teach us daily, over and over again, how to live the life of faith and faithfulness. And so, so our, our long journey of obedience is 
filled with stumbles and trips and falls and band-aids and recoveries uh, as God forgives us, cleans us up, and sets us back on our feet and keeps us moving. Uh, and so, so again, Israel out of Egypt, one night. Egypt out of Israel, 40 years. But, but how do you, you know, this is a whole other discussion, but I'm, I, I struggle with how do you live in this world full of distractions? I mean, I have to deal with the real world. Oh, yeah. I have to deal with the auto mechanic that didn't fix my car right. I have to deal with these things. There's coffee on I, your floor. I'm sorry? There's coffee on your floor. Oh, yes. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Grounds too, <laughs> but it's how, how do we do this? Because it takes us out of that path, and I and I just had such a hard time dealing with all of it, trying to do the right thing, and sometimes wanting to swear at somebody. I, oh, I don't, exactly. You know. So, so again, what you know is you're not there yet. You got that right. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry about that tone, but but yeah. this is this is the struggle right here. Is it may have taken forty years to get Egypt out of Israel, but for all of us human beings who walk this earth, yes. how do we get this earthly life out of us? Because we do have to deal with this earthly life. Oh, we do. We and do. I just haven't found the balance but, yet. Yeah, I think that what you what you do, I think you take encouragement that while you may not be yet what you ought to be, you are not what you were. Hmm. Little that, teeny bit by little teeny bit. Yep, ba baby steps. What about Bob? And uh, <laughs> but you know, the other the other thing that I think you see, uh, I think you see Paul talk about in. Uh, in Philippians, I believe, chapter 1, when he says that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it at the day of Christ Jesus. Now, it's important. He begins a good work in you. He continues the good work in you. But when is it completed? At the day of Christ Jesus. And this day is not yet that day. So he knows who he's dealing with better than we know who he's dealing with. He knows us better than we know ourselves. And, and he remembers that we are dust. But, but he works with us. And again, just as the image of Sarah's parents taking her out into the garden, they're less interested in her performance and more interested in her presence. That she's with them in the garden. And she will learn what she is to learn over time and it's probably less important that she learn it today than that she is in the garden because she will learn it so you know i think that's that's the picture that we have is that god god knows who he's dealing with and i heard the gospel described this way is that god loves us so much that he accepts us wherever he finds us that's a good thing <laughs> but oh yeah it is but second God loves us too much to leave us where yeah. he finds us is that he, he t is taking us somewhere. And while we may not yet be there, we are not where we once were. And that's, that's the encouragement that I think we look at and say, you know, be patient with me. God's not through with me yet. It's just dealing with the guilt that I'm not, what I think I should be. It's oh, yeah. that, you well, know. That, that's why there's a prayer of confession every Sunday. That's a good thing, too. <laughs> <laughs> it's, Start over. We, we get dirty in the world, and we need to get cleaned up again. Yep. And so, you know, and again, you know, we, we, see, we see our sins and shortcomings, which is, by itself, a sign of God's work in our hearts. That, you know, if he didn't give us eyes to see that, we would just continue on and would not, would not be moved to repent or to change or to seek forgiveness. Uh, 
So without a motivation to seek forgiveness and restoration of relationship, then, you know, when you don't put the pot under the coffee maker, <laughs> you just like, you know, you just look at your wife and say, clean it up. But if you want a relationship, you go, oh, A, that was my fault, and B, I'm so sorry, and, and you know, and I'll help clean it up. <laughs> this is so my fault, you know? Yep. So, and then, <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's how learning takes place. <laughs> so, yeah, we don't learn much from doing it right, but we learn a lot from not doing it. That's another thing too. Yes. So let's see. Fourth line Are down. We? Fifth line. If, if Moses. If Moses led them out of Egypt. Yeah, that's where we are. Yes, if Moses led them out of Egypt with their imagination still controlled by Egypt, it wouldn't be long before they would repeating, be repeating the way of Egyptian success themselves. As far as they knew, this is what worked and had worked for at least a thousand years if their imaginations were not thoroughly cleansed from the evil they were immersed in they would end up doing the same thing as soon as they were in power themselves oppressing the weak trampling on the helpless bullying those under them with might and size in the name of whatever gods there were let's see Why don't we stop there? Because I think we got the 10 plagues coming next. So we'll stop at 162. But good discussion. Thank you both. <laughs> Thank you all three. Thank you, Lucky. <laughs> so, and happy birthday to Angelo. Yep. So, we missed his takeaways today, but... Maybe we've got a few of our own. So, we, did. we did, I'm sure. And Sarah. Sarah with a H we missed. Sarah's company must have stayed. Yes. Yeah. So, so it's our closer. I'll close. Great.